older brothers started moving out, you know, they had girlfriends and this and that. I missed them so much that I told my mother that I wanted to start cooking so they would come. I would cook on Fridays and I was nine years old. My mother would have these books of international foods and I was so curious looking at them. I'm like, let's try this. And, you know, I don't know, they, they put up with a lot of patience to probably swallow the food I was doing, but I managed to bring them, actually. <laughs> hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired. And please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am just delighted to welcome Alan Hughes to the My Fourth Act podcast. Alan is an Argentinian-born chef, restaurateur, rock and roller, and inveterate world traveler. He began his career in some of New York's finest restaurants, the River Cafe, Sarah Beth's, Union Square Cafe, and did a stint as private chefs in Gracie Mansion, New York, New York City's mayoral residence. In Miami, Alan founded 190, a pioneering restaurant in the city's design district, and the embassy. Alan hosted an online cooking series for Yahoo in Espanol titled Cook and Rock, contributed to award-winning cookbooks, and produces highly entertaining and deeply personal culinary segments for his YouTube channel from every part of the world, all while he is performing in rock and roll clubs absolutely everywhere. Hello, Alan. Hi, Achim. How are you? <laughs> I'm well. I'm so happy we get to record this conversation. In full disclosure, Alan and I have known each other socially for about 15 years in Miami. Wow. Yeah, that's been uh, yeah. But I'm going to pretend that I know nothing about him and allow him to tell us a few things. So, <laughs> Alan, let me ask you first thing. You have this very Anglo name, Alan Hughes, <laughs> but you are from Argentina. How the heck did that happen, Alan? Well, Argentina got a lot of immigration from Italians, from Spaniards, from uh, from Europe in general in the 40s with the World War. So we, I happen to be a uh, you know descendant from British descent. Uh, even though my generations above me are from Argentina as well. But, you know, somewhere along the line, just to make it <laughs> very simple, we are from Great Britain. I am, I, I consider myself a complete RG, complete RG. However, I did go to a very British school in Argentina, uh -huh. uh, sort of like a Harry Potter kind of school, yeah. which... Uh, you know, now when I look in hindsight, uh, it's uh, it's an honor because, uh, you know, we had teachers coming straight from Wales, from Scotland, from from all over Great Britain. And and it was very tough. So, yeah, that's, you know, that's a little bit of the paradox, I guess. So, Alan, because you had a an early career and a lasting career and a very impressive career as a chef. 
So when you mentioned Harry Potter School, I'm thinking, did you think about being a chef while you were at the Harry Potter School? <laughs> well, food at home was something that we really treasured a lot. My father and my mother would cook. Uh, my father would cook very well. My mother would cook as well. And we are six brothers, so it was eight of us. And Sunday lunches was a ritual. You know, we would all sit down. Obviously, you know, sitting down at the table was a, a very common thing for us. And then, because I'm the youngest one, as soon as my older brothers started moving out, you know, they had girlfriends and this and that, I missed them so much that I told my mother that I wanted to start cooking so they would come. I would cook on Fridays and I was nine years old. My mother would have these books of international foods and I was so curious looking at them. I'm like, let's try this. And, you know, I don't know, they, they put up with a lot of patience to probably swallow the food I was doing, but I managed to bring them actually. <laughs> that story makes me chuckle because I'm in my 60s and I still never have the itch on a Friday evening to cook anything. So this is the difference between you and me and, and our wiring, right? I, I always tell everybody, you know, you don't have to learn how to cook. You just need to know how to eat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my sense is that I'm here. You had this yearning to cook, but you also had some, you learned from some really great chefs and you had some mentors. And I always wonder that mentorship is true in many professions, but I think even, especially in cooking, it probably helps to learn from a master. Can you give us a sense of who you actually personally studied with and, and what they inspired in you? Well, my first steps were in Argentina when I was probably 15. My mother managed through a friend to get me to do a stage for the people that don't know what a stage is. It's like an apprenticeship without getting paid to do a stage under, at that time, one of Argentina's premier chefs, which now is wildly famous. Yeah. His name is Francis Malman. And uh, you can see him in, I think it's the first series of uh, Chef's Table in Netflix. He has mm -hmm. one episode. In fact, one of the nights that he talks about, I was there with him, was very oh. interesting. You know, I remember that I went in the first day and just the first day blew my mind. When I came back to my house, I was looking at my mother saying, I'm blown away. I'm blown away. And so and so it was. It was for a whole year. I did not get paid. I would go on my bicycle quite a bit, quite a ride. And that time in Argentina, nobody would cook. There was no such thing as gastronomy you would say gastronomy you say astronomy no god <laughs> and well nowadays of course you know everybody's a chef or whatever you want to call you know but yeah that was very 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 powerful that was one of the big influences i had cooking now you you sort of to use that you sort of cut your teeth by working in some pretty fancy well-known places in manhattan Especially these days, there's so much in the, the media because about cooking and cooking is such a big thing and restaurants are a big thing. And 
There are many things that talk about the dark side of those environments. I've worked in restaurants as a server on and off for years in my 20s. So I had the experience of being in the front of the house. But before we get to your Miami part where you did your own stuff, if you think about what you learned in New York, take us to two extremes. Like I'd love to hear about moments where you go, wow, this is amazing. This is why I love working in restaurants. But I, I'm sure you had moments where you went, what the hell am I doing here? Right? So can you give us a snapshot of both extremes? Yeah. Well, um, I actually studied at the, it was called the French Culinary Institute, which switched to the culinary, no, the International Culinary Center in Manhattan, in yeah. Soho. That was in, in the 80s, in 89. And it was mind-blowing. I had been already in New York before, but when I got to, to school, I was blown away. I completely was blown away. And then I realized that the actual school happened after the school when I started working in the different kitchens. My first recommendation came by famous chef uh, Jacques Pepin, which he picked up the phone and hooked me up in a restaurant. And the minute I walked in, you, you hired Jacques Pepin or, you know, you hired. Right. So then my period in, um, in New York was was against the rule because everybody was saying, you got to build a resume of you have to stay long in a place. And I was like, no, I want to pick up what I learned from this establishment. When I'm done, I'm going to another one and another one and another one. And so I did a lot of switching around and I, that was very, very, um, very fruitful. That was a, a complete school because I, except, you know, vegetable carving or ice carving, I've, I think I've done it all, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and yes, you know, there's moments of um, I don't know. I re I even remember. I remember one day, uh, like I, this stupid image of like sneaking out the back door and getting high with another chef, uh, you know, and then going back in and just they say check the lentils. And I open the oven door and I look at this pot of lentils and saying, oh, I love this. As stupid as that. <laughs> it's crazy. You know, it's just loving what you do. And of course, you know, later in the years when you get all the, you know, recognition or, or when they value what you've done, you know, it's very, it feeds you, you know, it feeds you very much. But I also remember <laughs> once I was in, uh, I was also in New York. And one day I said, I've never been to Ibiza. Uh, let me let me go to Ibiza. And so I planned and I went to Ibiza and I arrived and, uh, you know, it was difficult to get a work. And then finally I, I get work because I just wanted to work there. Right. Um, and it was during the summer and so forth. And then, you know, my girlfriend arrived to Ibiza. So we were there. And then at some point, because there was no work, I ended up in this chiringuito in the beach, which is like, a, you know, like a like a beach little place, you know, a cheap place. And I was I remember that I was there looking out of the window and I could see the amazing ocean, the all the women naked in the nude beach. Uh -huh. And me flipping sardines. And I'm saying, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> it goes like that. This is about you, but that moment, I want to share a little story from my life when, when I was in my 20s. And I was broke. And this is my first day on the job at a restaurant a block from 
the White House in Washington, D.C., and I already went like I hate this stupid place, you know, and I had to wear this plastic apron, which was ugly as sin. And it was the lunch ship. And uh, the manager, who was this woman who was younger than me, who had this whiny voice, said, Oh, yeah. And, you know, the, the apron costs $17 and will deduct it from your first paycheck. And in my mind, I'm thinking, Oh, no, you don't. And <laughs> my section is full full of people, I take their orders, and I dump the apron in the trash and just walked out you know, <laughs> with my, my section filled. I said, really, you, you want me to pay $17? So there are those moments when it's a ludicrous <laughs> thing, right? Yes. I want to support you in that. But I also, my sense of you is, and, uh, and I say this with great Fondness that you you have a rebellious streak. You will put up with only so much, and you say screw this. Is that correct for me to say that? Yes, even though I do keep quite, I keep it quite professional because yeah. I don't like to burn bridges or close doors. Unfortunately, it's like that. And so, yes, yeah, you know, I can be in a situation that I'm uncomfortable. I'm like, I'm out. I don't care, or I don't care who you are. You know, we're all human. No, you know, uh, yeah, there's a limit. The, the positive side of that mindset is, and people say, well, you're just going to have to have your own restaurant, right? If you don't want to work in this culture, this environment. Before we get to your to your restaurants in Miami, I because I lived in Manhattan, and when I saw in your bio that you did a little stint at Gracie Mansion, which for non-New Yorkers may mean nothing, but in Manhattan, that's a big deal. That's where Ed Koch and David Dinkins and all of those guys entertained. My, my sense is that sounds absolutely horrible, but what was that like? Can you give us a taste of what it was like to do some cooking, chefing in the mayor's residence? Well, I hope your podcast doesn't get very, very popular because I want to say something a bit. Uh, <laughs> when I was when I entered working at the Gracie Mansion, I was illegal, and nobody knew. I did a flaw in the system, but I managed to get in. So they hired me, and I was there. And that was exactly when Nelson Mandela came to New York yeah. after he was released from from prison. I remember that exact day in which the Gracie Mansion had about 20 blocks, you know, surrounding 20 blocks, there was security. Nobody could even walk. And I would flip my badge of the Gracie Mansion and I keep on passing, you know, barricades until, you know, I cook for Mayor, for uh, Nelson Mandela. A couple of days later, the other chef, the one that was from Monday to Friday, he's like, Alan, come, come. He takes me to the garden. He's like, is it true that you're illegal? Like, get out now. <laughs> so, I'm like, okay, sorry. <laughs> no, no, very nice. <laughs> I've been in South Florida, Miami area for 18 years. Like you, I was in Manhattan. I came here. You, you started a restaurant before I actually knew you called 190, which, as I understand it, was a very it was a very small place it and it wasn't a part of town that as much as it was just sort of emerging and becoming hip and trendy and you're one of the people around the miami design district or adjacent to the design district and you created a place there so what i'm curious about 
how did that come about? <laughs> and what did it take inside of you to make that happen? I was in Miami Beach. I was working. I had been working as a chef in uh, an Italian restaurant and so forth. And then, you know, I veered. There was a lot of production in Miami with with photo shoots, models, catalogs and so forth. Right. So I started doing production catering and we started getting very, very busy. Me and my wife at the moment, uh, we started getting very, very busy. And then at some point, I remember going to the design district to pick up my daughter to to her friend's house one evening. And in my mind, I'm like, we need a kitchen. We need a real kitchen. We need a real kitchen. And after I pick up, I swing by this abandoned sort of restaurant that it says for rent and a phone number. And I arrived home. I call. The next day, I had the keys wow. of the place. I had no money because you know money was coming in i borrowed money i paid we actually started that restaurant with zero money yeah. now when i tell my my son no you got to do a business plan <laughs> no you got to do a business plan i did that impulsively and it was an overnight success yeah. it was a time of no social media no marketing for restaurants we got press from england from wallpaper magazine from so many publications we got i got a james beard award from there it was just crazy crazy my sense is and because i've been to you at the second restaurant at the embassy but 190 i didn't know obviously you're a really really good chef but it it takes more than that in my opinion to have a a, a restaurant that becomes a thing, right, that gets that kind of attention. There's a vibe, there's a something. Could you describe what's your sense of why why that place, 190, was this instant hit? How did that happen? Well, the typical, the typical comment of the right place at the right time, I think uh, that's what it was. Uh, there wasn't a place that it combined this sort of bohemian and chic thing at the same time. Uh, that, you know, celebrities would come for brunch and then all the friends would come for brunch and 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 we had music every night. It was just, it was a combination of myself, my wife being in the front of the house, which is an outstanding goddess and, and host. And it does take not only making good food because, I mean, yeah, you can go to a place and enjoy good food and just say, okay, great. The food is great. Fine. But it adds so much more when the food and the person that, that serves you and the vibe and the ambiance and so forth is great. You, you have been in restaurants that the food is good and the place is right. a hole in the wall. And you don't mind, you eat it and you love it. And you actually might even love the fact that it's a hole in the wall, but uh, when it all combines, it, it's so much more. And that it, it takes a lot of one's personality. You know, of yeah. course, as a chef, you have to be on top of the food, but everybody wants to come and see you. And sometimes you're in the back of the kitchen or you're in the kitchen and you're like, oh, I don't want to go outside, but you have to. Unfortunately, this is a job and you, you know, you're going to hear the same questions all over and over from every table. You know, it's how it is. But, but you know, you, you, you have to be cut to do a restaurant. Uh, it's, you know, unique. Well, well my, my sense is also, 
that you and Donna, your ex, your you're attractive human beings. You both have impeccable energy. There's a certain bohemian aura around you that I think, and I mean, there's a positive way and you have impeccable personal energy. And uh, as you described so beautifully, that that's sort of part of the it factor, right? That that makes people want to come back because they want to talk to you. They want to talk yeah. to Donna. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. Welcome, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, it probably happens to you as a guest. It does happen to me as a guest yeah. <clears throat> that I go to such restaurant because it's my friend's restaurant or somebody I know. And then you go and he's not there and it's not the same. Yeah, It's a bit of a curse for the restaurant owner because you have to be there all the time. <laughs> right. Or if not, the people are like, oh, I came and you weren't here. It wasn't the same. You hate that. You know, it's like, <laughs> let me have a day off. <laughs> now... Let's talk about music and rock and roll and performance. Uh, when did that become important to you? And uh, let, let me stop there. When did that become important to you? Well, um, when I was 13, I picked up my, my uh, a guitar. Actually, I started playing piano when I was very young, but it was classical piano. I, I could read and write, you know, I mean, no, I could read and play. But it was so classical. It wasn't my cup of tea. And I was playing rugby at the time. And, I, you know, I was like, you know, okay, whatever. And then, but then when I was 13, uh, I remember that two, two houses away, my cousins would have their huge house and a little cottage in the back. And in the cottage in the back, they had a band. And I was, I would hear them from mm -hmm. like three houses away. And I was like, oh, I love that. I want to do that. You know, then I would go, I was the youngest one of all these people. And there was like 40 people there watching them rehearse and play. And I was like, oh, I love this. And so I started learning guitar. And uh, I learned very, very quickly. Uh, and then my father, you know, saw that I was doing very well. And he ordered by a luthier this very, very nice guitar. And I kept on going with that, you know. So it's been ongoing. Uh, however, Argentina in the late 80s, it was a tough place because, well, it still is as far as economy because it's messed up. I couldn't see much of a future me dedicating myself fully with, uh, with music. And so I already had that duality because I was doing that stage uh, cooking and I was playing music in fact i started playing uh, a guitar in this band that eventually made it great in argentina but then i realized it came to a point that it was right at, at the end of my stage that i was ready to get out of argentina and i emigrated that's when i i decided no argentina doesn't give me the tools for me to to do what I want to do. In fact, I did declare it. I said, this country in 30 years is going to be the same or worse. And I was right. What, what interests me so much about what we're talking about is, you know, we, we live in, in a culture where people, people say you have to choose, you know, if you want to be successful, you have to focus. If you want to be a lawyer, you have to study and you have to put all your attention. And so you're really successful as a lawyer, whatever. In the idea of pursuing several things at the same time, it's usually not like the per people who counsel you about your career, they usually don't advise that, right? Yet many people have, like you have multiple passions. 
Yeah. What I'm curious about, because I could imagine that there must have been moments where there's this inner tension where you go, I should fully commit to music and make that the most important thing. Or no, I should fully commit to my restaurants because it takes a lot of energy to grow them. I can't do both. Like, how have you reconciled that? Well, I haven't. <laughs> I haven't because it still dawns on me. I mean, I sometimes say, why don't I just play, you know? And I remember that my father would, would always tell me, you have to do one thing and do it right. And I was like, but I love so many things. And nowadays I do love so many things. And from each thing that I love, I learn and I keep on finding new little crevices or things that I should polish up or learn more about. Because to me, I mean, it's never ending the learning process. It's never ending, uh, especially with all the technology. Now, forget it, you know. So that question is, is still open for me because I, I don't know if I'll be able to relinquish any other of the things that I do. And then recently all the videos started popping up and now it seems like it's taking so much more, the videos. <laughs> you know, now I have on my list, now that I finished this, this deadline that I had two days ago, I'm like, okay, please, Alan, focus on the next song you need to record because there's nothing going on. <laughs> A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the, the My Fourth Act Mastermind Groups, where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. Well, so let's talk about your YouTube videos. Your, what I admire about you about many things is that you very much on your own, you know, without having a big sponsor who pays you lots of money, you have flown all over the world, literally all over the world. You shoot food videos, travelogues, and I would say, of course, immediately Anthony Bourdain comes to mind, who, but you, who in the end was more packaged, you know, and his personality was more packaged, and you are more unpackaged. What drives you to fly to all these places? I mean, inside of you to, to do these videos where you do it without a contract. You don't do it because you have a deadline. I know we can talk about your recent deadline that you mentioned. But what animates that in you? I mean, it, I think it's, it's fueled by what you see in the videos. It's just the experience of the place I go, which I love traveling. Uh, I love food. And I love... Uh, humanity. I love how people are in their own places. I love to capture uh, their day-to-day. -day. Ultimately, you know, it's a, it's a travel and food blog, but ultimately food might become even secondary because the thing that surrounds everything about maybe a simple little thing made with flour 
that's it you know but but all that surrounds it is what really drives me so it's a combination you know the, the wine or the drinking or the scotch or the beer or whatever the, the tradition is there the 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 scenery the place and of course the food and the people it's that that's what really drives me essentially you know yeah my sense is that the videos are also another another form of performance for the performer in you. Uh, you're not you're not the shy you're not the shy quiet host. You know when I I think of Stanley Tucci, you know who does the Italy show on CNN. You're the anti Stanley Tucci. Like in, in your YouTube videos, you take up the screen and does that? How does that relate to your rock and roll? Is it similar? Is it different? I'm just curious. Well, it's interesting to know how it all started because, you know, with these cameras, like the GoPros, the little ones that started coming up, you have to understand that, you know, you, me, from our generation, when we were kids, we would never dreamt of something like that. First of all, if somebody had a camera, it was this big thing like that, that would have to carry with a cassette. It was so, you know, and so... That's why I say that I'm a 50-year-old millennial, because really, I drool on all the things that we have right now. And the kids right now do not know so much how much we dreamt of these things. So when these little cameras started coming up, I would be crazy, you know. And in fact, I bought the first one and I started filming in the in the kitchen, just stupid stuff when I, you know, blanching an asparagus or melting chocolate or whatever. And then, you know, friends started telling me, well, what are you going to do with all that food? You got to do something. And eventually, organically, it started flowing into a vlog. First of all, you know, they were telling me, yeah, but you have to script it. You have I'm like, no, 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 my friend. This is not how it's going to go. This is what I'm doing is different. And I told the producers and everything, my people, friends of mine, I'm like, no, 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 you're wrong. This is not how it's going to be watched in the future. I told him. And then, you know, I, I got an editor uh, that started editing for me. And then eventually I couldn't pay him anymore. And then I started editing and I realized I could edit. So now I'm like completely free. So back to your question, that it, 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 it all grew so organically that I was with, a, I've been with a camera on all the time and it's my buddy, which is eventually you or whoever's watching it because I'm sharing the story with my camera. Like he's my buddy traveling with me. And so I essentially do not or seldom act. I am myself and I show the ugly size, the unmanicured myself, the, the everything. I'm showing truthfully who I am, you know. I think that's one of the things that relates to the person. So really to answer your question, it's natural. It's not, uh, I mean, I don't have a problem getting on the camera and saying something because I have to say it sometimes to, for, for editing purposes that it helps, but it's just simple, no? It's just uh, second nature. Yeah. Now, a channel named Be In Sports just picked up some of your YouTube uh, food travelogues. I, I hate to label it that way. <laughs> which is very cool. Anything you want to tell us about that? Because you've been working away and somebody says, oh, we, we want it. 
<laughs> tell me about tell me about being sports because I don't know what being sports is. Well, being sports is a is a TV network. It's very big. They um, they do a lot of sports, uh, mainly sports. Sorry. Um, and uh, recently, I decided to go to Qatar, uh, host of the World Cup, is happening next month. And I, I said, you know what, I'm going to shoot some episodes related to the food and culture of Qatar. So people, essentially people that cannot travel, can see a bit of Qatar, or the people that travel can get more information, or maybe hopefully a channel, because, you know, during World Cup, you're tired of watching footballs and yeah. fans and T-shirts. You're like tired. So I figured this would be a nice break visually and, and, and from audio for, for a transmission. So I did these capsules, just like my format that I like, five-minute format. And being Sports picked it up. So there are uh, 17 episodes. I did them in Spanish and in English. So they picked both of them and they're going to be in all their, all the platforms, digital and air TV. And I have to get the breakdown, but pretty much is, uh, you know, the Americas, Middle East, Asia. So it, what it's fascinating <laughs> and back to the question you were saying before is that those little videos I was doing finally get approved or get welcome yeah. or reach the point in which a TV network is wants them. When I was conceiving the idea, I was defying all the producers that were telling me, no, 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 no. You know, now I was right. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially, first of all, I'm, I'm really happy for you yeah, thank that, you. that it's been picked up, which is fantastic. But also what I get from your story, and this is, I, I want to relate this to our listeners as well. When you put out something as personal as your travel logs, you said it, it's, it's you, it's non-scripted, it's you edited, but it's you. What they're buying is you, right? Yeah. Um, and so when they reject us, they reject us. And when they buy us, they buy us. It's, <laughs> it's very personal, right? When we put ourselves out. <laughs> See, yeah. Uh... You know, I've, it's interesting because I've, right now I'm, I'm publishing all the Qatar episodes. But if you go a little back, I had a couple of them in Burning Man, which I went to Burning Man in, uh, in Nevada. And if you if you see those episodes, the food is just two seconds. I mean, in one of the episodes, I even laugh at myself because the food is it's just a sandwich that I it's like my food today is this. That's it. It's mostly about the experience of Burning Man. I like how I can actually see narrowing those things down, uh, managing them. The most common comment I get is, oh, I love because I travel with you, you know, and, and, and so that also helps me as an angle because I can be in Miami. I'm like, oh, I'm going to the beach. But <laughs> in Argentina, they're like, oh, you're going to the beach in Miami Beach. No. So I also have to say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. So that sometimes I illustrate things that to me is second nature, like going to the airport, you know, and going and, you know, checking in. Some people don't take a plane. And so I start incorporating those things because I'm not explaining, well, you take the ticket. No, no. I just show them and people love that too. So, you know, you have to understand that. You have to do a check on yourself 
you know. Uh, Somebody might listen to you and then they want to ask this question on behalf of our audience. Might go, wow, it sounds like when Alan has an idea, he just picks up and goes and goes on a trip. And uh, I'm the kind of person when I go on a trip, I plan every little detail in advance because that makes me feel safe and comfortable. I wish I could be more like Alan and just sort of go on a trip and see what happens, but I'm afraid it's going to be a horrible experience. What, what, what words of wisdom would you have for somebody who wants to be a little more like you, but is, maybe, is afraid of being that way? Well, look, I tell you, my when I graduated from high school, uh, my father did to me what he did to everyone in my family. He gave us a ticket to Europe and the USA, 400 bucks and a Eurail pass. And he said, go. And so I learned how to be on my own and trust my instincts or intuition. You know, I don't plan everything. I now with age, I do, you know, I get hotels ahead of time. I get <laughs> ahead of time. I try to get tickets and so forth. But just recently I was in, uh, in Cannes in the South of France. I mean, two weeks ago, uh, you know, I'm on a train and I had to go to Marseille and it's late at night. And, you know, I took, I had to take a wrong train and so forth. So I'm like stopping in every stop and I stop in Cannes and I hear that there's a Cannes La Boca after more closer to, to Marseille. Go, ah, well, let's go. My ticket. Ah, I don't care. Let's go. Boom. I arrived to Cannes La, Cannes La Boca. I get off and there's nothing or no one. And I'm like, no, why did I do this? And then <laughs> I go back. I had to wait an hour for a five minute train. I go back and I stay in Cannes. And all the little hotels right there, they're booked. I'm like, no. And it's seedy, you know, right there in the station of Cannes is a little so-so. I'm like, you know what? I'm staying in the station. And I, <laughs> you know, it's I, not a... <laughs> I, I get you. Because I know you a little bit. Uh, I, I know in your personal life, there have been, I think it was as two major milestones. First of all, you, you alluded to getting older. You were born in 19... 19- 68, so you're 54 years old. Your mother, who had, had the privilege of meeting, who was an extraordinary woman, passed recently. And which is still hard for me to believe that Alan uses a grandfather, but Alan uses a grandfather. So <laughs> let, let, let's talk about how these two milestones, like what it's like for you to, to sort of move through those. Let's start with your mother. What's it like to to know that your mother has left this physical plane. As my mother was getting older, I reshifted my focus, my personal focus on, you know, not so much on work or even with my kids. I would be like, look, kids, this Christmas, I'm not going to be here. I hope you don't mind. I just want to go with Nanny. You know, she's getting older. And she's like, no problem, dad. Yep, I think it's perfect. So I did start, my mother, so just so for the audience understands, I'm based in Miami and my mother was living in Mendoza in Argentina. So I would go often, I would go more or less about four times a year to Argentina or sometimes, <clears throat> and sometimes I would stay for months there. And I realized that it's not only that I wanted to go and help my mother because she was a little, you know, she had a little challenge on her body moving and so forth. She could move and so forth, but her mind was bright. 
but she had a little challenge and I wanted to go and help her, but not only help her, enjoy her. So I, I would go four times, I think even more a year and spend time with her and I would be just great. I would call her every day. We would message each other twice a day, three times a day. It was great. She was my best friend and I would share stuff like my, my best friend. I would send her, you know, something cool would happen. I would send an audio and so forth, you know. And so she decided to come to see her sister in Connecticut. So we made arrangements. She arrived to Miami. Then she went to see her sister. And then she came back to Miami. When she was back in Miami, she saw all her relatives, my granddaughter, my son came from Atlanta and so forth. And then at the end, she was like, no, I want to go home. I want to go. Mom, sure you don't want to stay here. We can go to the pool, this and that. No, I want to go home. And she went home and four days after she passed. So I look at it like she did the farewell tour. And she very well knew that. And she probably, when she was in Argentina, she said, you know what? I don't want anybody changing me a diaper. I don't want to get to that point. I don't want to be a anything for anybody. If I have to go, I have to go. And she was very religious. She knew that when her time was going to come, she was going to go. So I felt, of course, sadness, but and surprised because I was just here. I would still feel the kiss that she gave me, <laughs> you know? And I was like, Okay, but I am in complete peace. I'm in joy. It's completely fine, you know. Um, as you speak, I speak about my. I think about my mother, who's uh, still alive, but she's ninety-seven, yeah. and I don't doubt I will have emotions when sure. she finally passes. But I am at complete peace with my mother, so I complete. I totally yeah. understand yeah. what you said. Yeah. Now because you're still a relatively young guy in his early 50s, Alan, but you just became a grandfather. Give us a snapshot of what that experience is like for a youngish person like you. (laughs) Well, um, I mean, I remember when I became a father that I realized that this sort of like new window in my soul opened up, like a, a new space, like a new, like I opened this new you know, door of a new room in my house that I didn't know about. With being a grandfather is the same. Uh, and it's just, it's just incredible. It's just, it, it, it comes, it brings a sense of reinforcement or, yeah, I say reinforcement and even like, um, like a confirmation that, you know, things are going well. You know, and when I see this little thing, it's just incredible. It's just incredible, particularly this little one. She's very smart. She's very outgoing. She's also a Gemini. So it's funny because my birthday is on the 3rd of June. Hers is on the 6th of June. And my son is on the 9th of June. So in one week, we have three birthdays. And I also told my daughter, the mother, that she sort of uh, ruined my life because if she happens to move to El Congo in Africa, I will have to move to be close to my little granddaughter. As you look to the future, and you have a lot of life left in you, and if life is all about choices, you know, we can think about, I want to do more of this, or I want to do less of this, or... I've always wanted to do, do this, but I've never really done it. And why the hell not now? 
What's Alan thinking about as he thinks about the future? Well, truly, I would like to play more live. That I would love to play more. Just recently, I had a show in England, and it was uh, very uh, moving. Uh, first of all, specifically because it was in the town where my grand, uh, with my grandfather, was from. But second, because I was surprised at the response, because most of my songs are in Spanish, and the response was great. You know, people were digging it, were listening. You know, it was very, 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 very welcoming. So that that was very nice. And then, you know, before that, I mean, it's going to be a year already, but I did a tour in Argentina, 18 shows, and it was great. So I would like to, I would like to be able to fit in more music, definitely. I think continue my path with the videos because I have a lot of projects and I have big projects, which I haven't mentioned. And that is actually very inspiring for me. So, so I think it's going towards that direction. So since you said I have a lot of projects which I haven't mentioned, if you were to mention just one and mm. one that you feel comfortable mentioning, even even if it's not a signed deal or anything, what's a project that you're excited about that's percolating? Well, one that it seems very plausible, if you will, or very, yeah, is one that I thought about uh, many years ago. You know, in Argentina, we had the War of the Falklands, the two islands in the south of Argentina. Yeah. It was a stupid war. I'm not going to get into details, but we went into war with Great Britain and Great Britain, you know, wiped us out and the Falklands remained from the Great Britain. And Argentina remains very bitter about it because the, we, you know, Argentina keeps on claiming that they're theirs. Whatever. I'm not going to get into politics. But I thought of, uh, of a project of flying four musicians from the UK and four musicians from Argentina, flying them to the islands, getting them into a house in which we would create and record 11 songs that don't talk about war or peace. It's just a turning of the page completely. No, no, nothing. And then uh, we would do a show in the islands, a show in Buenos Aires, a show in Great Britain, and then the documentary finishes. And recently, I just came from England, and I found people very interested in my uh, idea. So it seems, I don't know, I don't want to talk too much, but that seems possible. <laughs> so I have to, I'm going to end with this question, because as we listen to you, you were in Birmingham, you were in India, you were in Cannes, you were in Argentina, and people might go, oh, this is just a rich, independently wealthy guy. He's a trust fund kid. You know, mom and dad gave him a lot of money. Uh, you're not a wealthy person, yet you have created this lifestyle where, where you find a way of indulging your passions and flying all over the world. So how the hell do you do that? You know, I think people, I don't know how people travel, you know, uh, so I cannot judge how when somebody says, oh, I want to go to France, what do they think or how do they think they're going to travel? You know, mm -hmm. if they book a, a tour or whatever, you know, to me, traveling is the ticket, a place where to stay and then, you know, day to day food and, and moving around. Of course, that has a cost. But <clears throat> when I travel, uh, I'm mostly in the street filming. I'm, you know, I don't care about the finish of the 
of the furniture in my hotel. No, I the, the, I need a good bathroom, good bed. That's it. Clean. That's it. That's all I need. You know, I've I've shared rooms with with people. I have no problem. I've shared rooms in Russia and China. What I don't care. You know, so I think people might have a, a wrong sense of they're not aware that they can actually do the the traveling differently you know and 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 thus be there you know so i think that comes with a lot of traveling that i've done i've traveled on my own my first trip on my own my father allowed me to travel when i was 13 out of the country he signed a paper he said sure sure my father was a travel he traveled a lot too so and then you know i just reconnected with the energy of my uh, with my grandfather yes. my, my english grandfather my english grandfather lied on his age he was younger but he lied on his age to go to first uh, world war one to fight for the british so how come i'm not going to embrace that what am i afraid of nothing that's a perfect note to end our conversation on now where would you like to direct people who are curious about your music, about your videos, your cooking? Well, where can people find you, Alan? So my YouTube channel is Chef Alan Hughes. That's H-U-G-H-E-S. And Alan is A-L-A-N. So it's Chef Alan Hughes. You can see all my uh, my blog there, my my videos. You also see music videos as well. My uh, Instagram's account are Chef Alan Hughes, and I have Alan Hughes Rocks for music. That's pretty much it. Wonderful. Thank you so much for uh, your impeccable energy in the gift of this conversation. I loved speaking with you. Well, thank you, Achim, for having me. It's an honor because I see all the personalities that you have in, the, in your podcast, which, by the way, I, you're 90 what? 19. You're aware we're episode 80. You're episode 81 or 82 now. So I've been doing these. Yeah. You, for a while. So, yeah. I remember when you started. So, like, yeah. really, I applaud you. I applaud you. Thank you, Alan. Bye bye. Thank you, Achim. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.